Welcome back to the Dealmakers Podcast Show with serial entrepreneur Alejandro Cremades, best-selling author of The Art of Startup Fundraising and co-founder at Panthera Advisors. In this podcast, we ask our guests about their successful acquisitions and financing rounds. Hey guys, so just a quick overview here on Panthera Advisors as I think it might be of value to you. So Panthera Advisors exist in order to help founders that are in the process of raising capital or get their company acquired. I actually started the company out of incredible frustration because during my entrepreneurial journey, which involved building, financing, scaling, and exiting companies, I could not find a resource that was founder friendly and I could not get the type of support that I was seeking. So as a result, I made a ton of mistakes along the way. So if you're looking to raise capital or you are looking to get your company acquired or just need some sound financial planning and you're looking to get the best possible outcome in the shortest period of time, feel free to learn more by visiting us at PantheraAdvisors.com or just reach out directly and shoot me a note at Alejandro at PantheraAdvisors.com. Alrighty, hello everyone and welcome to the Deal Maker Show. So today we have a very, very exciting guest. We have a guest that has done this multiple, multiple times. And in today's show, really he's gonna walk us through the experience, through his journey, through the ups, through the downs, through the successes, through the failures, uh, you name it. So I guess without further ado, let's welcome our guest today, Nick Desai, welcome to the show. Great to be here. Uh, very exciting to be on this and to speak with you and all of your listeners. So, Nick, what a combination, born in Mumbai, but raised in Orange County in Irvine. So tell us about this, this shift, this transition. Well, look, I was, I don't even remember the transition. I was a baby when my parents moved to Orange County. And, you know, it took me, I grew up in what is basically considered total privilege, right? I lived in a very safe suburb. Irvine is one of the safest cities in America. Went to a great school, had two parents. Uh, we were immigrants, and and there were some challenges. And and I was, I when I it was 1979, uh, during the Iran hostage crisis, uh, some of the ignorant kids in in fourth grade, and I was a little kid at the time, and thought I was you know an Iranian and used to you know beat me up and spit on me and things like that. But you know what? It toughened me up and it put a chip on my shoulder, and it, and it drove drives me to work harder to this day. But other than that, it was an idyllic childhood, and I I'm thankful to my parents for, for affording that to me. And I'm sure that you definitely got a lot of inspiration from your parents because having that drive to pack the bags, to come here, to go after a, a better life for them, for you guys too. I mean, I'm sure that you really got inspired and that influenced you too as an entrepreneur, no? Yeah. You know, it's, it's funny because my father had his own business, my grandfather had his own business, and I was probably in junior high or high school before I understood that there was an alternative other than having your own business, right? That people have these jobs, right? I mean, you see doctors and police on TV, but you don't really think about it in the context of your own life. So, and I saw how hard my dad worked and there was no difference between a Saturday and a Tuesday and holidays and weekends and whatever. And that's just, that's the way I was raised. That's the way my wife was raised. Her father had his own medical practice very successfully. And that's, then we that's what led us to be married and to start heal together. And for you, obviously, engineering was a big one. Yeah. So so why engineer? I mean, how did you get this desire for, you know, addressing problems? 
I was fascinated in high school, in grade school, but in high school especially by how things work, right? I don't like not knowing the answers to questions. And engineering is a study that does two things, right? The first is, and back then, if you think about when I went to college, it was 1987, was my first year in college, computers were still a very new thing and microchips and all this stuff that people used to transistors. And I was like, I want to know how this works, right? I really want to know how this works. And, you know, my my dad, my father has a mechanical engineer himself. And he said, engineering is a way of thinking. It teaches you how to think and solve problems. And so I became very, very interested and found the study of engineering and electrical engineering in particular, because you learn so much mathematics and you learn so much physics and you learn so much chemistry and material science and, and then obviously how to apply all that, that it becomes second nature to think about how to solve problems, right? And today, the world has advanced in the last, you know, since I started college, I don't know, uh, 34 years, the world has advanced to a place we're talking about, you know, pro the Perseverance rover on Mars and, uh, you know, nanotechnology and all, all of this stuff. But all of it remains within the grasp of if I want to read about it, I can understand it, right? Whether it's healthcare, whether it's physics, whether it's whatever. So it was a very important foundation. And it's interesting to see the whole world now talk about STEM and the importance of STEM education and engineering and technology and science and technology and science, right? There's a great meme going around based on what happened in Texas, the tragedy in Texas that, you know, um, we could land a rover on a dime on a Mars 200 million a mile, 40 million miles away, but we can't uh, get heat in Texas. And it's because Mars, the, the probe to Mars is run by scientists, right? So I take a great deal of pride in, in being a scientist and being part of that community. And in your case, once you got your graduate degree, you went at it as an entrepreneur. I mean, I'm sure yeah. that, you know, it was probably something that, that really felt good to like really put everything into practice, to put your mindset, your way of, of perhaps addressing problems and, and really put something out there to the world. And the first thing, you know, idea, the first company was Siki. So, so tell us about how this idea came to mind, how you brought it to life, and, and how was it like to, to be a first-time entrepreneur? You know, it's an interesting question. I, it's actually a really funny story because people don't believe this when I tell them, but after graduate school at UCLA, I had a job at Rockwell Science Center and I had a master's in engineering. I was a single guy. So it was a great job, right? I had a car, I had a condo, I had all the money I wanted. And, and again, cost of living was lower and I was being paid well. And I was getting more and more comfortable. And I was telling my mom, well, you know, maybe I'll start a company in a year. Maybe I'll start a company in two years. And she actually, it was a different time, but she actually picked up the phone, called my boss. And, and, and so, no, I, so I, sorry, I told my boss, look, I, I, my parents are pressuring me. I'm going to quit my job because my mom kept saying, don't get comfortable. If you get comfortable with your standard of living, you won't have the risk tolerance to go start a company. And so I told my boss I was going to quit, and he called my parents. And he said, this guy's making a mistake. This is such a great job. In 20 years, he could be me, you know, at a company like Rockwell. And my mom said, that's exactly what we don't want to have happen, right? And she told him that, I, and they made me quit. And then a couple of friends and I were talking about different ideas for a company, and I, it was funny. I was a single guy at the time and I was, I was trying to find this girl's phone number that I wanted to date. 
and her phone number changed and I had no way of getting it. And one day in the middle of the night, this idea popped into my head. Let's do a self-updating address book on the internet, right? So instead of having my phone number, you have access to a data field that is my phone number, right? And and it just took off, right? And and I just ran with it. And you know, when I started my first company, nowadays there's so much information. That was 1998, right? So the internet was around, but it was a lot less used, and there was a lot less information on it. And it was still, you know, my first term sheet that I ever got from a venture capitalist was faxed to me in a fax machine, right? Wow. So you, you don't even think about fax machines now, right? <laughs> right. Um, I didn't know anything. I didn't know people ask, oh, are you raising a series A, a series B, angel, venture? I didn't know anything, right? I didn't know what a cap table was. I didn't know anything. I was an engineer with an idea. I knew some programming. I was like, all right, let's go for it. And And I think if there's a lesson in that, you know, people think, oh, you should work at a VC, you should be an entrepreneur in residence, you should go get an MBA, you should go do this. You know what you should do? You should just start, Yeah. right? You should just start and, and you will, it will force you to learn. And now with the incredible, incredible wealth of information that is available completely free on the internet, podcasts like this one, right? You can learn answers to questions without ever, you know, Having, I'm not saying education is important, but I'm saying that the most important thing to do if you have, if you want to start a company, is to actually start the company. Of course, I mean it, when we're talking about lessons here uh, with Siki, you learn quite a bit when it comes to board dynamics, and especially when it comes to favorable terms from a potential acquisition. So, so what what was that experience for for you guys like? Between 1997 and 2000, the NASDAQ ran up from like 1,500 to 5,000 or something, right? Dow was at a high, and that was when I think the then uh, uh, chairman of the Federal Reserve said there was irrational exuberance, very famously, and Goldman Sachs had an analyst running around saying the internet's going to, you know, all these companies are going to do so great. And every dot com, a little bit like now it's facts and the sort of the, the, just the amount of money that's flooding the market. And we got an offer to sell the company from a very well-known public company um, that was a multi-billion dollar company. To, and, uh, and I took it to my board and everyone felt like it wasn't enough. Right. And it was like, oh, we can do more and we can do better and we can do more and we can do better. And then the market crashed. And then it became one of these situations where we kept chasing the previous offer because that company, as market cap goes down, capital gets more expensive. So the company kept saying to me, well, we'll give you this much, which was less. So I kept saying to the board and they kept saying, well, if you get the last offer, if you get the last offer, right? And But the lesson I learned from that that I think is really important is, you know, at one point, I distinctly remember one of the board members asking me, a major investor, saying, Nick, we will sell this if your heart isn't in it. If your heart isn't selling, that is, if your heart isn't in running the company anymore. And I made the mistake of trying to sound loyal and saying, you know what? No, I'm in. Of course I'm in. I'll never quit, right? And that was a mistake because if I would have said, yeah, guys, I want the check, right? I'm in, right? I want to sell this thing. We would have sold it and everyone would have made money right? Including the investors. And ultimately the company ended up selling to one of the investors for uh, one of our customers, I think for very, a much, much lower return on invested capital. So, you know, and, and really no return for the common shareholders like myself. So it's very important to 
treat res- investors with the rights and, and respect that they're owed, but with not with so much deference that they investors invest in companies for entrepreneurs to run. And when they try to run your company, you have to push back. Yeah. I mean, you see that a lot with boards, right? When yeah. rather than basically getting the board to work for you, to help you, is more like a situation of you reporting to the board and it creates like a really toxic environment. So, um, yeah. And it becomes something where, you know, it's one of these things that someone told me once, uh, a VC told me once that if you go to an uh, a investor meeting, it's a very famous investor, right? One of the big Sandhill Road, you know, Excel Capital, Andreessen Horowitz, whatever. And they say, you know what? We're not going to invest, but you should make your widget purple, right? And then you go to the next guy and he says, you should make it pink. You should make it blue. He said, don't listen to anyone who doesn't invest in you, right? Their opinion isn't worth anything. But you know what the truth is? You got to be careful about who you listen to, even if they do invest in you, because they invested in you, right? And that doesn't mean you as an entrepreneur are always right. It doesn't mean that. But it means get your advice from smart people and temper the advice you get from people who have invested, because just because one idea is hot today, the great entrepreneurs are the ones who stick to their guns, who say, this is what I'm doing, and I'm going to follow through Travis Kalanick with Uber, uh, Reed Hastings with Netflix, obviously Jeff Bezos with Amazon, right? They had a vision, and they stuck with it, and they didn't let anyone talk them down from it. So in your case, after Siki, you know, obviously not the type of outcome that, that, that you would have hoped. You go at it again, as they say, once an entrepreneur, always an entrepreneur. You go at it again with Juice Wireless. So yeah. tell us about Juice Wireless. Well, so first I'll just talk about this phrase you said, once an entrepreneur, always an entrepreneur, right? It is so true and so powerful. Uh, my wife and I did Heal together, and we'll get to that. And she was she's a practicing physician before we started Heal. And now she talks about everything in terms of our next startup, our next startup, right? And I told her this. I'm like, if you do this for a year, it gets in your blood. And yeah. nothing else has the same feeling. Because instead of living in the world of tomorrow, you are creating the world of tomorrow, right? You're creating the world everyone else is going to live in. And that's a pretty powerful feeling. It's bigger than money. It's bigger than financial. People always get caught up in the money. Being an entrepreneur is not about the money most of the time. It's about the feeling you get that you did something really impressive and that you did something important that made life better for people, right? Um but anyway, so yeah, after Ziki, I took about a year to do some consulting work. I did some really interesting projects. I, I was consulting famously. I remember this with a, everyone wanted to understand mobile and ringtones were a big thing back then, right? And I famously did a consulting project with a company uh, w- with a hip hop magazine, right? And if you can tell anything about this 50-year-old Indian father of three, I'm the least hip person alive. Okay? <laughs> you know, it doesn't. You don't have to. You know, spend too much time looking to think this guy is not hip hop, right? Yeah. This guy is 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 you know something different. But I was consulting with this hip hop magazine about their mobile strategy, and it was a very interesting thing because it just is one of those one another reminder, along with so many famous investors I've had and so many that it doesn't matter how what you know what you look like what you do if you can do something and technology is often that thing you become a rock star right you know and rock stars want to be your friend instead of you wanting to be their friend right um 
So then I we stumbled into an idea. I stumbled into an idea um, called Juice Wireless. It was a funny story because in the context of working with that hip hop magazine, another magazine called me um, to do a ringtone strategy for them. And they wanted to pay me to money to do this. And for the first company, I was consulting sort of just as me, the person. And then I was, they were like, well, we have to, we have to hire a corporation. We can't pay you individual. So I went and created a company called Juice Wireless, right? And then I created the company and all of a sudden, I, we had this idea that people take pictures on their camera phones. Remember that, again, think about going back to 2004, right? Little LG and Nokia bricks and flip phones with a little camera and you take a picture before selfies people were still taking pictures of themselves they weren't even called selfies and we built the first app that lets you take pictures and publish them to your myspace page and myspace was a thing back then and then this new thing came along called facebook right and that was a thing and we let you publish pictures to myspace and facebook but back then it wasn't an app store it was these little walled gardens and all of a sudden that got a lot of traction and qualcomm invested in that company a bunch of other people invested in that company the chairman of qualcomm former chairman and ceo paul jacobs in uh was a big fan of ziki um and then i, I met him then he then invested in juice wireless and he's the second largest investor in heal and is the chairman of heal as a matter of fact um, Paul Jacobs is a very, very good friend of mine. He invested in that company. It was a really interesting company. And then, and it was interesting for me because we were doing cool stuff, but it was less interesting for me because I'm not a social media guy, right? I don't take pictures of myself, right? I'm not a, you know, now everyone does it, but I, I wasn't, you know, that wasn't my scene. Right. And, and, um, but one of the lessons that, you know, was really interesting that, that you asked me or asked me to talk about is, we wanted to get our app back then on the AT&T mobile's deck, okay? They used to call them decks back then. It was what apps that people were allowed to find or buy, right? And I said, we wanted to get to AT&T. It's taking forever. You know, a huge company, right? And four years, three years before that, I had met a guy during my consulting work for a totally different company named Ralph De La Vega. And Ralph at the time was the president of Bell South Latin America. It was a partly AT&T owned company that had investments in cellular carriers in 12 Central American countries, Guatemala and Honduras and places like that. And I kept in touch with him. Well, lo and behold, four years later, we're having a hell of a time getting AT&T and the president of AT&T Wireless, a guy named Ralph De La Vega. So I'm in San Francisco one day for a conference and uh, or a meeting, and I open USA Today, and there's a list of the 10 coolest multimedia apps on phones. And lo and behold, our app is on there. And someone texts me about this at 6 a.m., and I get up, and next to it, I read that Ralph De La Vega is in San Francisco giving a talk at a conference. So I took a cab, bolted, this was before Uber, bolted to the conference, waited for him to come off stage, shoved my way to the front of the conference and said to him, Ralph, do you remember me? I'm Nick Desai. He said, hey, Nick, I only have 10 seconds. And I said, if what you said on stage is true about your mobile strategy, you should look at Juice Wireless. Three weeks later, we had a contract to be on their deck, right? So the point of that story is, Meet everybody you can and never relinquish 
Never give up. The worst thing someone's going to do is say no. They're not going to spit on you. They're not going to kill you, right? They're, they're just going to say no. Yeah. Okay. You know how many people said no to me in my life? Thousands. Yeah. You're already, there's nothing to lose. There's nothing to lose. But but that kind of scrappy perseverance, that kind of, I'll go to the place, I'll knock up. Everyone nowadays thinks everything is, I'm not saying stalk people, right? But everything nowadays on email, everything is like, oh, I'll be this, I'll be that. You know what? Passion sells. Being aggressive sells. Being a go-getter sells. Find the person. Get through the clutter. Keep sending emails. You know what my rule about emails is? Sending cold emails? You keep sending them until the person says, stop sending emails. <laughs> right? I, I love mean, it. I love I'm it. Spam, but if you're emailing an individual person, right. the worst thing they can do is say, stop emailing me. Yeah. But literally, I will bring that fast forward to today. In the last two months, we as HEAL have been trying to become a COVID vaccine administrator in the state of California, where we're founded. In the state, program has gotten much better, but two months ago, it was kind of in a mess. It was very hard to get through. We had filled out all the forms. There was no clarity of answers. I started emailing the chief, the, the head of California's Department of Health and Human Services, Dr. Mark Cayley, every single day, Saturday, <laughs> Sunday, I don't care. We need to administer COVID vaccines. Heal can help. I'm a Californian. Heal can help. Eventually, I found out that my physical therapist sisters married to the governor and i bugged her until she texted her sister to talk to the governor newsom to get me and i got governor newsom on the phone and i got dr gailey on the phone and guess what we're administering vaccines in california now hey right? there you go there you go so nothing and like being persistent about Nick Desai, it's just that i refuse to give up that's the way it is so in this case for you let's see after jews world basically this was the segue into your uh, prior company now to to heal. No, let's just touch on this just a little bit. It was Fit Orbit. So why don't why don't you tell us? Um, I mean, obviously, Juice World it ended up basically with the iPhone and the market conditions on 2008. You guys ended up uh, perhaps you know folding it and 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 moving on. But when we're thinking about moving on, you go into Fit Orbit. So. Really quickly, what were you guys doing at Fit Orbit, and what was your biggest lesson learned with Fit Orbit? So it's a, it's a, it's again an interesting story about time and place, right? When I was approached with the idea for Fit Orbit, Fit Orbit's the one company that I, we had an idea for that I wasn't my idea, right? When I was approached with the idea for Fit Orbit, I was also engaged to get married. I'm 38 years old, and you know you can tell I've had a couple of too many burritos and pizzas in my life. <laughs> And while my now wife, who's a physician, is like, get, you know, lose some weight, Nick, and, you know, get in shape. We want to look good for our wedding pictures. And I meet these people who want to talk about an online weight loss coaching platform. And I was like, crap, that's really cool because I need help losing weight. And I was determined to build a product. And ultimately, we built Fit Orbit and Spark Capital and Anthem, uh, Blue Cross, Anthem, the huge insurance giant invested in it and uh, a number of other in individual investors. And, and it was a great platform because I didn't build a platform for really fit people to get even more fit. I built a platform for dad bods that there wasn't even the word dad bod back then. Right. But people like me and women, you know, in their middle ages, 
trying to get fit and don't have time and they're never going to make it to a gym and they're never going to make it to a trainer doing things at home so you could get a personal trainer over the internet for 10 bucks a week. That was a proposition. And it grew and it was really, really interesting. And, and I ran it. And, and honestly, I learned a lot of lessons there, but a lot of the same ones from Juice and Ziki. But I would say the other interesting ones is the, one of the lessons that is very applicable to heal, right? Is there are products Americans want and there are products that they think they should have, right? Mm. And ironically, the ones that we think, oh, everyone would want this are not the ones people want, right? It's hard to get people to want to lose weight. I know this from seven years, six and a half years of doing heal. It's actually really hard to get people to pay attention to their healthcare too. We think of healthcare in America like we think of parking lots, a parking spot, which is when I need one and I have to pee and I got to run into the store and my kids are crying in the car. I really need to park my car. But the moment I leave, I never think about that parking spot again. I don't think of it as a part of my life right? Take someone's cell phone away, take their beer money away, take their ability to go out to see a movie. I mean, I know right now there's a pandemic, but, or their Netflix account away. And they'll be like, oh my God, I have, I can't live without this. But you take their healthcare away and people don't immediately realize how important it is for them. So I think the most important lesson I learned with Fedorbit is how hard it is to get people invested in themselves, in things that are good for them, right? It is a unique interesting part of American culture that the things that people want in other countries or take for granted are things you have to convince people they need in America. Otherwise, why would you need to convince anyone that they need health care or health insurance? Why would you need to convince anyone that they should be in shape for themselves, right? Yeah. So that they don't have a heart attack, right? But even myself, I'm 50. I know the risks. I have three young kids. I like to eat. What can I say, right? It's hard. So it's an interesting thing about American society is what, what you can sell versus what people want to buy. Got it. So, so in this case, at least it opened your eyes and yes. perhaps your interest around healthcare and definitely the segue to heal, you know, which is yes. the, um, uh, because with, with fit orbit, essentially you guys sold that to one of the investors, but now this open up the possibility to what is your, your recent baby, no heal yeah. and uh, probably your biggest success. Uh, to date. So why don't we talk about Hill? Uh, what was that conversation that perhaps you had with your wife? Because obviously you started the company with your wife. Right. And how did that incubate to really bring this to life? Well, so Hill, um, my wife and I, uh, it's, a, it's a very long story, but we had in 2014 uh, an infant child who needed a lot of medical attention. And, and I don't want to get into the personals of his health, but he needed to go see a doctor very, very frequently. And here I was, I was CEO of a company. My wife was a practicing nephrologist, a kidney doctor with a very successful practice. We were very privileged. We had money, we had cars, we had nannies, we had grandparents in the name. My, I mean, my parents, my wife's parents, all these people to help. But it was still hard to get my infant son to the doctor. And one day we tried, called his doctor. It was a Friday afternoon. And the doctor wasn't available. And so the covering doctor said, that sounds like an infection. Go to the emergency room. And we sat at the emergency room for seven hours. And as we came home, we realized uh, it was 11 o'clock at night, seven hours later. And we realized there has to be a better way, right? And we were in an Uber coming home and we were thinking Uber and doctors and sort of got our brains going. And then 
then my wife, my wife sort of went back to work and we had kids and all this stuff. And I, uh, I came up and I, I made this Flinto, right? Which is a self-running mobile app demo. I came back a couple of weeks later and I showed it to her. It was basically the original concept of Heal. And she said, this is a billion dollar idea. We should go do this. So we started the company, right? Wow. And that was that. Again, you know, my view is analysis will stop you from doing great things, but rarely leads you to do great things, right? So we started the company and she and I started it together. We have partners then, we're partners now. We're equal partners. She's the chief medical officer. I'm the CEO. We hire people together. We innovate people together and we raise our three wonderful children together, right? So um, it, it's been a, it's been an incredible ride and it's the one now that I have kids, right? Okay, I can make a picture and post it to the web and I can do this and do that. It's all neat stuff and helping people lose weight is certainly an interesting and rewarding endeavor, but there's nothing quite as rewarding as giving people healthcare when they need it, right? One of the most important problems HEAL solves is the quality of access problem, right? That a lower income person living in a poor neighborhood has the same access to great quality care with HEAL that a rich person living in a wealthy neighborhood does. And we feel very good about that, right? It's extremely rewarding for us to be a part of that solution, to deliver that to people, right? Um, and it's something I feel good about telling my kids that I do, right? As they grow up and mommy and daddy go to work and they work a lot, well, what are they doing? They're changing people's lives with healthcare, right? So it's a, it's been an extremely uh, exciting, rewarding, challenging adventure. So what's the business model? How do you guys make money with Heal? Well, there's fundamentally two business models. The first is what's called fee-for-service care, right? Which is we come to your house, we charge your insurance company, we get some money, and just like a doctor's office does, right? But it's hard to, that's a low-margin low business, right? The other business model is where healthcare in America is going, which is called value-based care, right? So one of the things I like to say about Heal is, the only real way to lower healthcare costs is to improve health outcomes. Healthy people cost less, period. End of discussion, right? Anything else is just robbing Peter to pay Paul. If your insurance cause doesn't cover mammograms, guess what? Less women will get mammograms. And then you know what will happen? Breast cancer rates will go up. Even last year, because of the COVID infection, people didn't go to doctors. They didn't get their annual physicals. You know what we're going to see in three and four and five years? more acute diabetes, more acute advanced cancers, more acute heart disease, because preventive care, an ounce of prevention is worth a pound of cure. Mm. So what Medicare is leading the charge to do is to develop what's called value-oriented care strategies in which we help people stay out of the hospital, detect disease early, get preventative health care, address their healthcare needs, take the medications they're supposed to, eliminate the medications they're not supposed to be taking. 50% of all prescription drugs in America that are prescribed and filled are never taken by the patient, right? They're thrown away. So why are we filling them, right? And in that, we help lower healthcare costs and we help improve health outcomes. And then we share in that value. And that's the real model that is sustainable for HEAL, that is sustainable for the patient, that is sustainable for the provider because they feel good. They get make more money for delivering better health care, right? The patient is getting better health care, so they spend more time being well and less time getting well. And the person is paying for it, which whether it's an insurance company, whether it's your employer, whether it's Medicare, whether it's your tax dollars, it's ultimately our tax dollars. It's ultimately all of us are paying for health care. 
we can actually reduce the cost of healthcare delivery, right? Again, healthy people cost less, and we're helping people get healthier in a more cost-effective way. Got it. So how much capital have you guys raised to date for HEAL? We raised about $165 million for HEAL. We've raised capital from everyone, uh, including insurance giant Humana, uh, to, as I mentioned, the former chairman of Qualcomm, Paul Jacobs, to groups like IRA Capital um, and Briar Capital and um, the Taiwan Sovereign Wealth Fund and uh, others to individual investors ranging from um, the person who just called me, Jamie McCourt, who is the immediate past U.S. ambassador to France. Um, uh, she, you know, there's a change in president, so obviously she finished with that role. To Lionel Richie, um, who was one of the other phone calls I got just now, by the way, <laughs> nice, um, the, the musician, world famous singer, and very nice. Because and, and and you know what, people ask me how did I get to all these people and how did they get involved in heal and how do I know all these famous people? I don't know anybody. I'm a 50 year old Indian nerd, right? Healthcare and technology are the things that unite everybody because every, I don't care if you're a billionaire. Or if you're a homeless person, everybody's going to get sick. Everybody's going to need a doctor. Everybody hates the broken healthcare system, right? And we're seeing that now because of the pandemic. It's a great equalizer. The Herman Cain, who went to that Trump rally, is worth $400 million. He still died from COVID, right? The rich people are not. Yes, of course, all disease disproportionately affect lower income and ethnic minorities. And that's unfortunate. And we need to fix that. But ultimately, the reality is that all of these people are united by something, which is when they're sick, they need healthcare, and we're the easiest way to get healthcare. Well, absolutely. So I guess um, for you guys, uh, Nick, you know, if uh, if you were to wake up, let's say, in a world where the vision of Hill is fully realized, what does that world look like? Well, the first thing it looks like, I always say this, is my children have no idea what a blockbuster video store is, but they don't even know what a DVD is right? They literally have no idea. They have an iPad, they hit a button, the content comes and they watch their movies, right? My oldest son is seven years old. I don't think he's ever going to learn how to drive a car because I think autonomous vehicles will be here and mainstream in 10 years, right? In the same way, if heal is what we achieve our vision, people won't know what a doctor's office is in five years or 10 years, right? Nobody thinks of a bookstore to go buy a book anymore. Nobody thinks of a store, frankly. They just think of Amazon, right? In the same way, we think people are not going to think of doctor's offices. And people are the other part of the vision. So that's the convenience and change to the existing system. But I think the other part of system is people are going to expect and have a relationship with a family doctor in their family room, right? Their healthcare journey and their 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 path to better health and staying in good health will become more of a part of their life, more integrated with their digital devices and tools, more proactive, more data-driven, and more comfortable relative to their real life, right? You go into people's houses that are low-income people in poor neighborhoods, and you tell them, oh, you should eat lots of green vegetables. And you know what? They can't afford green vegetables. Or you tell them, take this medication with milk, but they can't afford milk right? When we go into people's houses, we're able to treat them with dignity and with respect and understand those issues, food insecurities, fall risks, drug and alcohol, to give people a care plan that is more uniquely suited to their individual life and needs. No, no, it makes total sense. I mean, I'd say it's amazing, you know, hearing you, Nick, because one thing that is for sure is that you can't fake passion. 
and the passion that you have for this ultimately is is inspiring uh, and it's a uh, contagious too. So uh, in this case, Nick, you know, especially as uh, one of the questions that I typically ask the guests that come on the show is, imagine if I put you into a time machine and I'm able to bring you back to that time where you were getting your graduate degree and you have a and you are able you are able to be in a position to have a chat with your younger self, that younger Nick that is thinking about leaving Rockwell and starting your own business. What would be that one piece of business advice, only one, that you would give to your younger self before launching a company and why, given what you know now? It would be, don't look back. Don't be, I mean, I guess this is more than one now. I I think if it was one piece of advice, it would be, don't be afraid of making mistakes because you're going to make them no matter if you're afraid of them or not. And the quicker you make mistakes, the quicker you're going to find the right path. I love it. So, Nick, for the people that are listening, what is the best way for them to reach out and say hi? Uh, just if they want to check out Heal, go to Heal.com, H-A-L.com. If they want to reach me, just find me on LinkedIn. I'm Nick Desai from Heal on LinkedIn. Amazing. Well, Nick, thank you so much for being on the Dealmaker Show today. Thank you for having me. This was a lot of fun. If you like the show, make sure that you hit that subscribe button. If you could leave a review as well, that would be fantastic. And if you got any value, either from this episode or from the show itself, Share it with a friend. Perhaps they also appreciate it. So also remember that if you need any help, whether it is with your fundraising efforts or with selling your business, you can reach me at alejandro at pantheraadvisors.com. You've reached the end of another episode of the Dealmakers podcast. For free resources and materials, head over to alejandrocremades.com. Thank you for listening and see you at the next episode.